0: acronym that kind of helps me remember the order of these cities it's c-a-i-l-d c-a-i-l-d and you might remember a handy little thing to help you remember something that means something they sailed on that journey and we'll spell sailed this way c-a-i-l-d we that's okay when you're let's look at the map uh we cannot study the book of acts without looking at a map here so we're going to look at sort of the left-hand, look at the screen, on the left-hand corner of the screen, up at the top, we have gone from Troas over to Philippi, and that's what we studied in, in Acts 16. Then for today's lesson, we're going on over further to Thessalonica, Berea, and then down south to the city of Athens, and that's our text for today in Acts chapter 17. Little leftover business from chapter 16 I want to look at with you together. When Paul and Silas have studied with the jailer and have converted him, what happens after that? The last paragraph of chapter 16, what happens? Where does Paul where do Paul and Silas go back to? Why wouldn't, after an earthquake and all the bonds are set all the prisoners are set free why wouldn't they just get out of town they've been beaten after all they've been put into prison don't you think it'd be a good time to sneak out in the wee hours of the morning and get out of town but what do they do they go back to the prison the rulers say let them go and Paul and Silas say no no you have them come to us, take us out, and he appeals to what? His, his Roman citizenship. Ha-ha. Uh-huh. Now, understanding some of the secular history would un- help us understand that a Roman citizen has more rights than other people do in this area. So they have more rights, and thus it would have been uh, hard to beat someone like this being a Roman citizen. So anyway, they appeal to their Roman citizenship. Said, "No, you have them come get us and do it themselves. What does this do for, uh, eventually Paul and Silas do leave in verse 40. They leave, went out of the prison, entered into the house of Lydia and saw the brethren and then they left. So what does this process mean? He's appealing to government, and by the way, I think we find in this that Paul uses the opportunities that he has to appeal to the governing laws, the civil laws that benefit him and that that help him in certain situations. He he uses those available laws. But what else, in addition to that, I think we find interesting is why did Paul go back to prison, you know? Why did he go through this whole process? And here's a thought question I want you to consider as we dig a little deeper into this. It could be perhaps that he is doing this, going through this process to help the brethren that he is going to leave behind. Had he just left in the middle of the night, these rulers might, you might say, had the upper hand on the brethren there. They've already beaten and imprisoned Christians. Paul and Silas leave without saying anything. Perhaps they think they can do it at any time they want to. But when Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship and takes the upper hand on these rulers, I think that somewhat lends to the protection of the saints that are going to be left behind. Lydia and her household, the Philippian jailer and his household. It's going to help them as they continue to maybe... uh, be without oppression and fear okay let's get into Acts chapter 17 the first 10 verses cover the city of Thessalonica verse 1 now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews now this is Paul's custom he likes to go into the synagogue of the Jews where there are people that are interested in studying and worshiping God So this is what he likes to do whenever it's available to do so. Verse 2, Paul, as his custom was, went in unto them for three Sabbath days, reasoned with them from the scriptures. What scriptures would he reason from? The Old Testament, definitely. Definitely reason with them from the scriptures, the Old Testament, and these are being a synagogue. This would be primarily, uh, we're looking at Jews or proselytes, Greeks that are proselytes of the religion of Moses, the law of Moses. Verse 3, opening and alleging that it behooved the Christ to suffer and to rise again from the dead. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Verse 3, alleging that it behooved the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. This is none other than what Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 16 that he was going to do. He's going to suffer at the hands of the rulers and the chief priests and be put to death. Matthew 16, and that's actually what happened. It continues the last part of verse 3 that this Jesus whom said he I proclaim unto you is the anointed one. He is the anointed one. The Christ is the term that they would use to refer to that. He is the anointed one, and some of them were persuaded and consorted with Paul and Silas the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and chief women, not a few. So we're in a heavily Gentile world, and it is noted that many were converted. Many were converted to the gospel. Many Gentiles were converted. Also in verse 5, the Jews, how did many of them react? Jealousy. Paul is stripping them of the power that they have, the control that they have on people, religiously speaking. And he's refuting their doctrine. They're continuing in the law of Moses, and that has been done away with. Verse 5, the Jews, being moved with jealousy, took unto them certain vile fellows of the rabble, and gathering a crowd, set the city on an uproar. You know, sometimes we use that phrase, he's nothing but a rabble rouser. As you get the idea of what these people are like. They're vile fellows of the rabble. They gather a crowd, set the city on an uproar, and they assaulted the house of Jason. Do they find who they're looking for? They don't find Paul and Silas, but they take hold of Jason. They drag him out into the, the, to the brethren before the rulers of the city. In verse 6, they find Jason, who apparently has housed these brethren and saying, and they've turned the city at this point in time into an uproar. They've got nothing but a mob on their hands. And you think about the, what the gospel, just pause and just think about what the gospel does when it's preached. Is Paul in these, in these cities trying to cause trouble? Not at all. He's just preaching the gospel. And the gospel is what stirs people. It divides people. Some believe, some disbelieve. And when the disbelief is such that it strips your power and the system of religion that you've developed over the years, it hurts. The verse, last part of verse 6, These have, they say they accuse these brethren, these people have turned the world upside down. And now they're in our city doing the exact same thing they did in Philippi. News is spreading fast in this region of the world about what these apostles are doing. Jason has received these people and housed them, and now he's threatened. And it appears that he's uh, Held in some type of uh, condition and let go uh, what we might call a, a bond or a jail bond or something of that de- uh, nature, but they're accused of turning the world upside down. Jason has acted contrary; hath received them, and all these have acted contrary to the decrees of Caesar. There's the idea we talked about a couple weeks ago about we're in a world where you have to deal with. Uh, not only Jews and Gentiles, you have to deal with people of a Gentile, uh, of a pagan mindset, idolatry. You have to deal with people also that have a a Roman mindset, where they uphold this idea that Rome and the emperor is high above everything. And then sometimes, even if it maybe is all too convenient, they use they appeal to that. Oh, he's they're here turning the world upside down. And they're speaking against our Roman emperor, after all, because that's what really is something that will fan the flames of the mob and the rulers as well. Verse 8, they troubled the multitude and the rulers of the city when they heard these things and when they had taken security, our money, we might say a bond from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They released them from their arrest. I want you to, as we look at the Thessalonians, I want you to go back and, and notice one thing that uh, is interesting to me, well, or actually two things. First, we look at verse 1 through 10, the message that Paul preached to these people is christ suffering verse three and rising from the dead the resurrection any time paul has a chance to mention the resurrection he does this is the gospel this is what is so integral to the gospel that we cannot forget it every time that paul has an opportunity he mentions the resurrection of the dead he mentions it here And actually, if you look out through uh, the entire book of Acts, you'll see either the raised from the dead or the term resurrection mentioned about 30 times in this book. That's a lot, isn't it? And it's uh, appropriate that we're looking at a book that's filled with a gospel message, that it be filled with this idea the gospel is about the resurrection of Jesus, about God raising him from the dead. This is what he's appealing to these people about. Now, also, I want you to hold your finger here and go to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It gives us a lot of commentary on the subjects here in the city of Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. He says there to the Thessalonians, When I came to you, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So they had received the word in much affliction. And verse 9 says, They themselves reported concerning us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how you turned from God or t- turned unto God from what? What? Idols. Now two things I want to note about the Thessalonians that we see, particularly here in Thessalonians, is that they turned to God from idolatry and that they had done that in the midst of much affliction, much persecution. They did not have the favor of the Thessalonian people to do this. They didn't have the encouragement by and large of Thessalonian people to be converted. You know, if if you're in the city of Thessalonica and you look across the bay, you would see a large, large mountain, Mount Olympus. You may have read about that in the past. Mount Olympus was uh, the one that housed the gods of that day and time. Many of the gods were said to have lived in Mount Olympus. And that loomed quite large in the city of Thessalonica. You couldn't miss it. It's a city of idolatry. But yet these brethren turned to God from idolatry, and they did it even in the midst of affliction, persecution. The odds were against them, the people were against them, but they did anyway. Now we go back to Acts chapter seventeen. Any thoughts on Thessalonica before we continue? All right, the, uh, verse 10 says, The brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea. So in Thessalon- Thessalonica, they were taught about Christ. We see the Judaizers persecuting. They couldn't find Paul and Silas, but they do what they can and persecute the house of Jason is what, uh, instead. The brethren send Paul away, apparently secretly here, by night to Berea in verse 10 they come thither and then where do they go a synagogue all right let's pick back up in the in verse 11 what do we find about the character of these these people I will say in Berea how do they compare says they are more noble than those in Thessalonica. And it really defines what that means to us. What does it mean to be more noble here? He, he follows it up by explaining what he means by that. That they were doing what? Searching the scriptures. How often? Daily. So in verse 11, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. See, they've opened their minds and their hearts. They examine the scriptures, which means they open their Bibles, and then they do so daily, which means they open their schedules. So they open their minds, they open their Bibles, they open their schedules to allow God's word to enter in And they do this to determine whether these things were so. Whether Paul and Silas are telling them the truth or telling them another false doctrine, another tale, another myth. How many there believed? We See, once again, how many Gentiles believed? Quite a few, doesn't it? Quite a number. We don't know exactly. It says many, verse... 12. Many of them therefore believed also of the Greek women of honorable estate and of men, not a few. But then lo and behold, what takes place once again. Verse 13. Who is dogging their trail once more? The Jews. Jews And by this time, don't you think Paul and Silas have just about had enough? Yes. These Jewish rulers,
1: had it been their Messiah that they agreed with, this wouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. But because they didn't agree with the, the Messiah that they're preaching about, they're devious, they're deceitful, they're doing whatever they can to stir things up. I mean, what they're, what they're telling people that they're teaching another king besides Caesar, they would have never used that argument on anything else. Mm -hmm. But it's convenient for them to use that. Did they really want to follow Caesar and the Romans? Absolutely Mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. Anytime they had an opportunity to have an uprising, they did. Mm -hmm. But, and I get the, the whole point is this. We need to be careful when we have arguments, discussions with people about the way we believe that we are very careful not to resort to arguments that are not very scripturally based and that are not emotional like this because we could end up kind of doing the same thing and we don't, we don't want to look like these folks, the Jews, and how they did. Um, we need to be very careful, and I know most of us are, but occasionally... Some people get out of hand, I guess, a little bit in, in how they argue the truth. And we don't, we don't need to do that because we we have the truth. We know what it is. And so it's easy just to go through. And that's what Paul and, and Silas were able to do, logically show from the scriptures what things are saying. They didn't have to get emotional, but when people were able, like you said, to open up their mind and their Bible. It made sense and they believed it even to the point of going through persecution because to them it made sense and that's really how we need to present it as well.
0: with christ they would do it with paul several times accuse him of something that's a twisted uh, accusations not true uh, just to appeal to the mob make the mob swell so we continue in verse 13 <clears throat> the jews of thessalonica the city he had just been to, they had knowledge of the word of God that it had been proclaimed of Paul at Berea. So here they come, stirring up the multitude, troubling the people. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul and Barnabas, or Paul rather, to go as far as to the sea and Silas and Timothy abode there still. So Paul is going to leave. Silas and Timothy not being the the immediate target that they're looking for are going to stay behind and help the brethren there. All right, so as we look at Berea, we don't see as much, in, we don't have as much information on Berea. They're more noble than those in Thessalonica. Many believe there, many Gentile people believe there. And here come the Judaizers again on Paul's trail and the brethren brought Paul to Athens it seems here in verse 15 but they conducted Paul or they that conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timothy that they should come to him with all speed they departed it seems to me that the wording is that the brethren and this is quite a bit of distance uh, south to the south if you remember on the map some of the brethren go with Paul perhaps uh, for protection for help to for whatever reason, some of the brethren are uh, good enough to go with Paul as he leaves this city. So going back to the idea here, he's been to Philippi, We might men might look at that and say, well, it didn't go so well there. Goes to Thessalonica and we would say, well, it didn't look like it went very well there either. Then he goes to Berea and the mob is, is at him again. The Jews are at his heels, chasing him out of town, and it didn't look like it went very well there either, but when I say it didn't look very well, I'm looking through the eyes of men, right? I'm looking through my eyes and think about how frustrating that would be, but I want you to flip that over and look at the other side and think about how many different cities are hearing the gospel, isn't that interesting? How many different cities are now being exposed to the gospel of Christ? Philippi, now Thessalonica, and then we got a couple of people now staying, Paul and, or Silas and Timothy staying at Berea for a period of time, and now Paul is going on to Athens. Think about how the gospel is spreading, and I want you to think about persecution and things like that, and things that, that are upsetting to us, but... Many times, God is using that to spread the gospel here, I think we can show in this case. He's spreading it faster, much faster probably than it would perhaps if, if we had outlined the strategy of how to uh, teach the gospel. Go back to Acts chapter 2. Would you have done it the way God did? You know, leave it up to men, and we would get around a, a table and we would decide, okay, let's advertise on the internet and let's uh, just advertise as much as we can. Let's get the word out there. God didn't do it that way, did He? He could have had angels at every point on the earth to proclaim His message all in one instant, but He didn't do it that way, did He? He chose to have witnesses, and that's why it's so important in Acts 1 verse 8 that we understand the word witnesses. These witnesses began in Jerusalem, they went to Judea and Samaria, they spread out and spread out further. Men would not have done it that way, would they? We wouldn't have done it that way. But God in his wisdom spread the word one person at a time, one witness to another, to men, and and on and on we go. That's the way God chose in his wisdom to spread the gospel. And today, we must abide by that same process. have one comment back
2: here. Oh. <laughs> I just wanted to say... Um, the mission wasn't totally unsuccessful because they said many of the Greek women and the Gentile women, they believed. And in the household, back then, the women played a big part of raising kids and and uh, the future generations. So for them to be converted into Christianity and then to teach their children that was a big deal mm-hmm. because... Um, because um it is true that he and the roster cradle does rule the world mm-hmm. i mean i mean uh so through these faithful women and through these faithful mothers and daughters and aunts and uncles the gospel spread up. Mm-hmm. and um and it may seem simple or overlooked but a lot of the um uh, women went throughout Europe and throughout other places and they spread this gospel and that's how people learned about Christ and that's how people learned about things because they, little kids will ask their mommy, well, mommy, why do you do this? Or mommy, why do you do that? And so these these people became faithful and then they, they became the preachers and they became, they saw, of course, the persecution and um, but they their, their mother would be that gentle source of kind of like what Timothy's mother was back then and help them spread the gospel
0: back then. I would say amen to that. Amen. Women, I know in my family, going back generations, the women many times, and I know some of you can say the same thing, the women are the ones that held tight to the gospel and handed it down to their children and uh, caused their families to be faithful. And, uh, and even at the end of this chapter, we see a woman in Athens, Damaris, she responds to the gospel as well. Yes.
1: I think it's a really interesting point
3: you bring out about just the timing of him not spending a long time in one place and God's providence there. And I wonder also when you look at maybe some of the issues that he faces in Corinth with them wanting to follow after a person, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos. I wonder if there's maybe uh, maybe there's an answer there in God's providence that if He had just stayed in one place, man has such a tendency to follow a man, and by allowing him to go to a place and to introduce the gospel and then move on, maybe that was God's God's forethought there and not allowing them to follow after a person and just the message. As you've already pointed out, it, it. we see time and time again They, in preaching the gospel, they reference the scriptures. Of course, that would have been the Old Testament scriptures. So in Acts chapter eight, the eunuch was reading from Isaiah 53. And uh, you mentioned here that the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily to see that those things were so well, if I remember right, just a little later, he's going to go. Paul's going to end up in Corinth, spend about a year and a half. And I believe he wrote the first letter to the Thessalonians from Corinth. So it won't be very long since he was in Thessalonica. In mm-hmm. that first letter in chapter five and verse 20, he said, do not despise prophetic utterances. That would be those with the gift of prophecy that could teach the gospel. He said, uh, but examine everything carefully and hold fast to that, which is good. So he's encouraging the Thessalonians to search the scriptures mm-hmm. like the Bereans were doing.
0: hmm very good. All right, we go to uh, the city of Athens now. And Athens is one of those cities that is full of idolatry, full of philosophers, and Paul preaches there to the unknown God. They have made a uh, memorial to a, a thing to an unknown God, just in case they missed a God. But think about Athens and it being a very, a city of, of a, a center of much learning you want to go and have the best education, the world would say, well, go to Athens. That's where the teachers are. Uh, And uh, so that's the kind of city we're in where Paul goes now and he tries to spread the gospel. Now, while he's there, verse 16, he waited for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked when he saw this city here full of idolatry. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons in the marketplace every day. Notice he goes, he doesn't just go to the synagogue. He goes to other places, the marketplaces, where people will talk and maybe listen to the gospel. There's Epicureans there in verse 18 and Stoic philosophers, all kinds of philosophers here. The Epicureans would say, eat, drink, and be merry. Live life, live it up, because after you die, there's nothing. You are nothing. The Stoics, in contrast, would look at this life and they would say, well, you just need to endure this life. Whether you have sorrow or pleasant things, good things, whatever you have in this life, just endure it. And they would both join in the idea of there is no resurrection of the dead. There is no judgment. They would be uh, united in that particular idea. So some of them say, well, what would this babbler have to say? They're kind of interested. They're intrigued about what Paul says because they haven't heard anything like this before. They haven't heard reasoning like this before. They haven't heard anybody talk like this. He preaches Jesus. Notice again, what he has oppor- when he has opportunity, verse 18 says he preaches about Jesus and the resurrection. resurrection. There it is again. We should never, ever tire of talking about the resurrection of Jesus. It should never become weary to us. They took hold of him, brought him to, the, to, to Mars Hill or the Areopagus. We want to know more about what you have to say. These are strange things to us. We, we don't quite get this. You don't sound like somebody we've heard before. At verse 21, we'll say, perhaps in parentheses in your Bible, everybody's here just to simply talk about some new thing, some new thing that tickles the ears that you haven't heard before. And that's what a lot of these philosophers enjoy doing. So they give Paul the opportunity, a grand opportunity, and he takes advantage of it. I would say this is a masterpiece of a sermon, really. Is a, I want to go all the way to verse end of verse thirty-one. At the end of verse thirty-one, he concludes his sermon by talking about what topic. Have we said that before? He concludes the sermon by talking about the resurrection of the dead. But how did he get there? He got there in the most unconventional way. We would say he could not approach these people like Paul or Peter did in Acts chapter two. And why is that? They wouldn't know. They wouldn't know these scriptures, would they? If Paul were to talk about King David and, and all these Old Testament scriptures about the resurrection, about Jesus being at the right hand of God, he they wouldn't know all these things, would they? So he preaches a masterpiece of a lesson. He approaches... He Well, let me... I'm going to stress one more time. Verse 31, he ends with the resurrection but how he gets there is a little different and his approach has to be different he has to start from a different place and let me say by the way that when we're we need to be sensitive to that when we teach people and preach to people that we understand where they are we have to preach to them where they are and then take them to the resurrection of Jesus Christ somehow some way Verse 20 Let's go on to verse 23 or let's verse, Last part of verse 22 You men of Athens in all things I perceive that you are very religious Very superstitious You're very zealous in one thing You, you have uh, monuments to all these idol gods And you have them all covered You are very zealous in that I will say For as I passed along, I observed one that uh, caught my attention here. The altar had the inscription to an unknown God. I'm going to tell you about this God that uh, you don't really know about. Last part of verse 23, what therefore you worship in ignorance, this I set forth unto you. First of all, the God that made the world and all things therein. And I want you to notice as we look through these verses here that follow the word all or that idea. All or everyone, every man, everywhere, all inclusive. Verse 24, the God that made the world and all things therein, he being Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples or sanctuaries made by hands. All of these Monuments around Athens here, they're made and graven by man's hands, aren't they? So let's outline this lesson together, this sermon together. First of all, he talks about God is the creator. He cannot be made by man's hands, he cannot be fashioned by man's hands. God is the creator. That's his first point verse 24, God made the world, all things therein. Neither verse 25, neither is he served by men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth he, giveth to all life and breath and all things. Notice again this idea of all. He doesn't need anything from us from our hands per se as he if he needed anything because he gave to all life and breath and all things so second point here second major point God gives life to all he gives all things to all people verse 26 he made of one that is Adam every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth having determined their appointed seasons and the bounds of their habitation Third point, God made all nations on the earth. He made all nations. You mean every nation? Yes, every nation. He determined their times, when they arise and when they fall. He also determined where their boundaries are. Well, you can say, well, men got out there with a line and stretched it out, and they cited the lines where they wanted the boundaries to be. No, God did that. God did that, not men. Paul is saying God determines when these nations arise and when they fall. Then he says, uh, well, let me back up here just real quickly. Verse 26, made of one nation, every man to dwell on the face of the earth, having determined their seasons and the bounds of their habitation, their boundaries, Verse 27, that they would seek after him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. This reminds me of what's said in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 talks about a a totally godless people. Romans 1, verse 20 says, the invisible things of him since the creation of the world are clearly seen being perceived through the things that are made, even as everlasting power and divinity. So we can look at the created world. Let's just take, for instance, our body, how intricate it is. We can look at any part of the human body see how wonderfully we are made. And we don't just awe. We attribute that, as this verse says, to who? We attribute it to Divinity to God divinity in other words we can look at all these things in the world and we can see God in them if we have honest hearts and I think Romans 1 tells us basically without looking at it any further is telling us that we can come to know God and we can come to know salvation without starting in the Old Testament scriptures Let me make that plain. Let me make uh, that plain by repeating that one more time. We don't have to start in the Old Testament scriptures. We can start somewhere else by being awestruck and understanding the power that God has. And then that leads us to understand there is a God that's greater than me that created me. And that's what Paul is trying to get them to see. He can't go to the Old Testament scriptures He's starting somewhere where they know, they understand, they can look at their own body and see the power and the divinity that is there, that we've been created by the all-powerful and the only creator. Verse 28, For in Him we live and move and have our being, that was a popular saying of the day. And apparently it apparently is attributed to Zeus back in the 600s BC. They said a poem about Zeus, in him we live and move and have our being. Paul seems to extract it from that and say, in him, God is the one we live and move and have our very being. And additionally, he says, one of your own poets also said, we're his offspring. They misapplied that. Paul is applying it here to God, that we are his offspring, God's offspring. We are the offspring. We're made in the likeness of God. Being then the offspring of God, verse 29, we shouldn't think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver and that we can make something with our hands and worship it and suppose that that is our God. We can't do that. Now he's, he's getting to the point you see on their idolatry. He's hammering them on their idolatry. He's not wanting to make friends. He's wanting to step on their toes. He's wanting them to hurt, to see their error. He's exposing their idolatry. He says, verse 30, The times of this ignorance, this type of ignorance, such as idolatry, God overlooked. He didn't excuse it entirely, but he overlooked it. But now he has given his gospel. He commands man that they should all, verse 30, all everywhere uh, repent. All men, Jew, Gentile, any, any race, all everywhere, any nation. He commands them to repent. Give this idolatry up because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world Now we continue here with our outline. His next point is in him. We live and move and have our being. Next, we all are his offspring. And then finally, God is the judge. God demands repentance from all. He is the judge of all the world. And he will judge the world in who? Or by whom? By Christ. He will judge the world by Christ, the very one that he anointed and he gives us finally as we close that idea oh Paul that's just your philosophy. He gives us one piece of great assurance that this is all true and what is that? Exactly. What is our assurance that what Paul you're saying is true it's accurate it's real it's worth giving everything up for the our assurance is the resurrection of Christ that's it it all rests on the resurrection of Christ he tells them the same message really that he tells anyone else guess we better stop there appreciate your thoughts and participation